Kaiju FM, come find your niche. In my opinion, 300 sucked big time. Only the fact that I was having a night off from work, so remaining my seat was an opportunity to relax, stopped me from actually walking out. Characters, barely even one-dimensional, racial categorization ludicrous, battle scenes, though admittedly initially impressive, paling very quickly into dullness. While watching the screens over mode on a video game where you haven't got any credit left, utter trite from start to finish. See, trying to judge 300 by traditional film techniques is as misguided as comparing the Spice Girls to Beethoven. This isn't a film built upon the Hollywood-esque ideals of narrative drive, emotional connection between audience and character, or even traditional character models. 300 is creating, I suppose, or recreating, the ideals of film mythology, harking back to the earliest Hollywood epics, even back to cultural myths, urban or ancient. It works to create feelings in you, an emotional charge, rather than delivering a message or cultivating a change in perception. This is escapist fantasy of the highest order, appealing to our basest emotions and imaginations. The effects and the visual style of the piece, although overused in place, work to serve this mission. The unreal reality of the framing and the washed out, highly stylized color grading distances the audience from the action. In a similar method to, I suppose, traditional Brechtian theatre, allowing them to engage with a piece at a level that isn't weighed down by characterization and narrative. Looking at a film in a similar nature to ancient Greek myths and legends, rather than as a piece of traditional cinema, allows for a great understanding of the ideals and intention that drives it. I was prepared to grant you most of that, right up until you compare it with Brecht, and you shot yourself in the foot there, giving your earlier reference a good one to Beethoven and the Spice Girls. There is no way the dramatic output of one of the greatest modernist artists of the 20th century can be even remotely compared with what is essentially vapid, stylized eye candy. Mother courage, it ain't. Death of Catcher in the end of the former is far more poignant and gut-wrenching than the death of a character who, by his own admission, gets what's coming to him. Yes, the editing, the use of colour was slick, and though I haven't read the graphic novel itself, the stars seem faithful to the genre. That doesn't excuse the misogyny, near-imperial white man attempting to overcome all odds against the nasty foreigners' style of rhetoric, stereotyping the whole invading force, or cheap-shot insertion of magic creatures into a historical story to heighten dramatic effect. You seem to have misconstrued my reference to Brecht by trying to force it back into your narrow-minded view of character-driven narrative empathy, rather than how it's intended. A comparison of the audience distancing techniques used. I was with you until the idea that Leonardo gets what's coming to him. You've utterly missed the values and ideals behind his sacrifice and his death. It is not that he has somehow earned this death, that he deserves it, more than he serves a higher purpose in his immortal life. The idea that freedom doesn't come free. And I admit that for all your staid and stagnant views of cinema, the story is one of the misogyny and neo-imperial white man attempting to overcome all odds of narcissists, but that once again is missing the morals and mission of this film is based upon. This is not a film for grey areas, for anti-heroes or multifaceted characters. It is a stripped down-to-the-bone experience. The audience is driven by the emotion of the piece, rather than interest in the character development or their emotional journeys. No one changes in these films. It does not conform to the traditional ideals of a hero having to overcome himself before he can overcome his enemy. 
Leonardo starts the Mito control and he ends it control. He lives and dies by his own choice. We do not empathise with him, emulate him, or even root for him. The root and end of this story were known before it even began. A traditional betting technique, often used to great effect, Milkovich, with its events revealed before they're played out. Unless you're so arrogant as to dismiss millennium, I'm going back to Sparta and beyond of literary work. You can't judge an emotional response to the narrative drivers of piece as narrow-minded, character-driven epithet. Art, literature, film, entertainment, fiction, whatever you want to call it, it relies on communication with an audience. My undermining of your breath point, yeah, it was harsh, but behind it was the fact that however much breath distance nor needs, he did so only to engage them further. This is something that, in my opinion, this film entirely fails to do. Quite aside from any value judgments, there was no way in which I engaged with this film. And however much we can argue about the need for empathy, character interpretation, or anything else, if a film fails to entertain because that bottom line is what it's there for that it can't be classed as a success for that particular person i don't buy the quote-unquote serving a higher purpose freedom doesn't come for free argument for the simple reason that i think it's something that has entered the political framework of such debates as the war on terror to which incidentally i see this film as a fairly unveiled reference to the extent that people are now prepared to use it as a way of buying into some sort of jingoistic mentality rather than actually focusing on the underlying message of a particular narrative. And I'll give you stagnant. I don't have a lot of time to watch as much cinema as I'd like, but not stayed. Misogyny and neo-imperialism are never justified. If a stripped-to-the-bones experience involves unquestioning acceptance of values that centuries of human rights activists have striven to eradicate, there's something deeply question about the quote-unquote morals and mission of this piece. At no point did I say or intend to imply that the idea of a piece of art based on emotional connection between the consumed and the consumer is in any way wrong or narrow-minded, simply that the view that all art should fall into the condition is. And although I have no desire to squirrel this debate into dramatist conventions, I believe Brecht's aim was not to merely to engage audience further, but to engage them in a new and different way, forcing them to react in different and often more instinctive ways. As to lack of entertainment, one might pitch the idea that a true piece of art can be by its ability to challenge and divide opinion as to its validity and a place in the art world, a battle that this film is still fighting in some ways to this day. And looking deeper at your assertion that film works on one level as a reference to war on terror, who do you pitch as the other side? The argument can be made this film serves to highlight a mainly Western audience base, a point of view of the enemy of this war, America as the larger and more technically advanced fighting force, defenders' willingness to honour and lay down their life for freedom people, defenders as these noble heroes of the peace. The worrying aspect of the whole war on terror comparison thing is that it's the West which comprised the Spartan army and government in terms of the actors used and the echoes of Greek, Roman, Shakespeare and even public debate, the rational refusal to listen to the oracle. These are all the West. The other army, to quote from Edward Said, the invading Persian forces is stuffed by a mixture of fantastic and grotesque creatures and non-Western actors. And to the fact of 
leading elephants and rhinos into battle. It's a possibly a metaphor for bringing the eastern unknown, lots of inverted commas here, to bear on an upstanding western force in an underhand way. The structure of the film thus works to present the West as being faced with the necessity of taming the East, quelling insurrection among those they see as foreigners. In this respect, the film, in showing the Spartans as embattled, forced into reaction, presents some sort of skewed vision of West-East conflict. That's if you want to read it as a metaphor in that way. I have to say, the whole Iraq comparison was only brought to my attention by an American friend with whom I watched it, and he absolutely loved it. What was that about? Art and provoking debate? And you can add to that the roles of Theron and the Hunchback portraying the Judas, I suppose, in this messianic parable, forcing it once again through the filter of metaphor to come to represent the dual threats to the supremacy of the West. First, Theron the traitor, the wise as mistrustful and deceitful, followed by the Hunchback portraying the idea that physical weakness is akin to moral weakness, being tempted to betray his honourable countrymen to the deviancy of the East. These two avatars within the story serve the ideal that right, the might is right, the physical strength is tied to success. Another worrying trend in modern society. Touche. When we're famous, they can publish a collection of these. <laughs> when? When we're famous. Hey folks, and welcome to The Prestige. This show's a little bit different uh, than our normal shows. Normally, we pick a film, we review that film, we discuss that film, we talk about some of the ideas it throws up. We'll be doing that here, but this is also our 200th episode. We've been doing this show for about five years now, and we've reached episode 200. What we started the show with, guys, that three, four minutes of debate is what started this whole podcast. This is what Sam and I had a debate, I believe, over Facebook Messenger. Sam, correct me if I'm wrong there. Um, After we'd both seen 300 back in 2007. And that debate, heightened and silly and self-important as it was, because we were kids, um, was what made us think we should do more of these things. We've been friends for a long time, we like movies, we should talk about movies, and that's what eventually birthed this podcast. So we thought for our 200th episode, A, we should return to the well, and we shall look at the movie 300. So we'll be doing that later in the episode. But also we should bring you a little snippet of what the um, debate was. It went on a lot longer than that. We aren't going to put it all up <laughs> online. Uh, but it did go on and get more and more silly as it went on. As always, guys, we are going to end the show with other films we recommend and uh, other things we kind of link to this movie. Um, and we'll always start with what else we've been watching. Just one more note, guys, as this is our 200th episode, we have asked some of our friends and family and friends and listeners and people to send in little recorded notes of the movies that we've covered that they love and why they love them. So we'll be sprinkling those in throughout the entire recording. But before we kick off with more of 300, Sam, how have you been? What have you been watching? Well, in preparation for 
a day that may or may not ever come when I get to see get to go to the cinema again. Um, I want to see A Quiet Place too. Um, in preparation of that, I saw the first one, which was absolutely brilliant, and it is just what a film should be. It wasn't too long, and it was tightly paced, and it was a horror film, but not sort of over the top with gore, and it had tension in the right places, and the acting performance was brilliant, and yeah, I absolutely loved it. So yes, A Quiet Place was the the first one for me. Also, the um, first... I suppose the the pre credit sequence, if you want to call it, the the first sort of four minutes of the film is just, I think, the most perfect bit of cinema ever recorded. Is and a friend of mine who teaches um, structure in GCC English language plays that to his students as an example of how you can do an awful lot with implication. And tells you an awful lot about the rest of the story right at the beginning. Mm. So yes, that that's my. I mean, I'm I'm way behind the times, possibly because it came out in the first six months of my first son's life, when I don't really remember anything. I don't see any films, so I'm slowly catching up on the first half of 2018. I have various chunks of my life like that. Well, I, I, I like when my daughter was born. There's like a few months there where we saw nothing. But also, like, I remember I went to I went to India for a job for about two and a half months. Um, and I just saw nothing because I was in rural India, didn't see any cinemas, mm. and I come back and I missed so many films. Uh, as a contrast to you catching up, I have watched something that's smack bang fresh new. Wow. Um, and I have watched the I'm going to call it a movie, but let's call it a stand up special slash movie. Bo Burnham Inside that's debuted in uh, Netflix at the end of last month, I think it was. Uh, this is, if anyone knows Bo Burnham, he is an American comedian well-known for comedy songs. Um, they are very, very good and very, very popular. He spent 2020 into 2021, obviously in lockdown like the rest of us were, and he spent that time making a comedy special by himself. And... It essentially tells his journey through pandemic and the destruction of his mental health as part of that. This sounds a strange to talk about as a comedy special. It is very funny. It is very bleak. It is a lot about his experience of the internet and his experience of fame and his experience of lockdown and all of these things, what it means to be a modern person in the modern age. He turns 30 during the recording of it. Um, and that's some of the features. I can't talk too much about it because it's going to give away too much of what happens in it. But I will say it's it's lived rent free in my head for two weeks since I saw it. Okay. Um, and it is the song. Some of the songs in this I listen to every day. Um, and I've not been a I, I knew of him before this, but I've never really been a fan of him. But yeah, it's absolutely it's brutal and uplifting and thought-provoking and it's definitely in the running for one of the best films seen this year well that's good it was it's something that i knew of and heard about and probably needed a push to watch it so i will definitely watch that i think i mean you we've told you you are more musical than i am 
Um, and I have friends who are musical like you who have expressed awe and respect of the musical side of things. I can't speak to that. You know, I'm, I'm a lyrics person, um, but it's very, very good. Um, I'd be deeply intrigued to see what you think about it. Oh, brilliant. So Rob has already talked about this being our 200th episode. Well, it's, it's probably about 214, given the sort of lectures we've done, small batches and weird non-canon episodes. But let's call it episode 200. Um, and in episode 200, confusingly, we're doing 300, the film. It's only confusing from numbers point of view. It's not confusing given, um, as Rob explained, this is going back to the start for us. himself, taught never to retreat, never to surrender, taught that death in the battlefield is the greatest glory he could achieve in his life. Spartans, the finest soldiers the world has ever known. is 2007 epic film based on a comic series by Frank Miller of the same name from the late 1990s and the comic and the film are both sort of fictionalised retellings of the Battle of Thermopylae and it revolves around King Leonidas played by Gerald Butler who's the king of the Spartans and he goes against the wishes of the oracle, um, although the decisions made by the oracle are themselves corrupt and they're 
um, brought about by corruption within his own government, as it were. Um, and he goes to fight um, a huge Persian army. I mean, um, historians have argued for many years about the size of the Persian army at Thermopylae, but it was it was very very big. It was certainly close to a hundred thousand at least. Um, and he fought it with three hundred Spartans. And this film is, as I said, about him, about some of the characters that he fights with. Um, it's a good turn from Michael Fassbender, for example, and also about um, Lena Headley playing his queen back at home and the struggle she has with the um, the corruption of the government who refused to back Leonidas when fighting and um, the the head of this insurrection against Leonidas, who is Theron, who's played... Um, it seems to be quite gleefully by a fairly greasy-looking Dominic West. I was lucky to recently watch a re-release of the theatrical cut of Aliens by James Cameron in the cinema, uh, and it reminded me not only how poor the pacing in the director's version is, uh, but just watching it on the big screen was a joy for people to gleefully accept their own demise as they fire guns into the distance. Um, it's just catharsis, the film, uh, set within a, a beautiful, horrific <laughs> alien landscape. So, Rob, we've heard your 14-year-old thoughts on this film. Have things changed for you? Hopefully a little bit older than 14. Um, no, as in 14 years Oh, 14 ago. years ago, yes, yes. Um, 300, 300, 300. You are a confusing film. Um, I struggled with this film on rewatch because I cannot I cannot be as effusive in my praise as I was 14 years ago because Sam's early points are very true. This film is real ripe with masculinity toxicity. It is ripe with othering of the bad guys. It is ripe with so many things that we would consider objectionable and irresponsible and all of those I suppose judgment are true but I can't help but like the movie I think the movie is a lot of fun I think that Gerald Butler's probably never been better than he is in this I like the look of the movie the movie looks impressive and it looks mythic it looks the thing and I think what I've come down to and this may be I don't know this may be problematic in its own way but my rationalization of the imagery is this the thing to remember is this whole film, this whole story, is being told by Delios, the survivor. Mm. He is telling the opening section. He's telling to um, soldiers on the eve of battle, and the end section he's telling at the eve of the larger battle. He's telling this story to inspire his troops. So the movie is Spart. The whole story being told is start Spartan propaganda. Leonidas becomes this epic war hero and the bad guys become these horrific oddities and the film becomes this propaganda piece it becomes this story that is told this i mean yes it is an othering story but it's a story told to an army who have to fight an invading force and 
I don't think I'm looking at this as a movie of historical representation, because I think anyone to do that would be stupid. And I don't think that my earlier points, my very earlier points 14 years ago, are entirely wrong about the, for want of a better word, abrective nature of you have to remove yourself because this is not a real story. It's not a portrayal of events. We aren't looking to this movie, this story. We shouldn't be looking to this story to give us character growth and a narrative, a realist narrative, because it's not. We have an unreliable narrator. We have an unreliable narrator for the entire movie who is telling a story with a certain purpose. But it's a bit like the Fight Club argument many times, that Fight Club, yes, is a brilliant satire of masculinity and all the problems of modern masculinity. But there's a whole cohort of men who didn't see the satire and just saw Fight Clubs. Mm. And this film, um, it's not satire. But it strays too close. That, and I think I'm probably being far too generous in my reading. I'm being far too generous because because I like the movie. I think the film, you know, I come from a technical film background. And technically this film is amazing. And even the invading Persian army who we will talk about being this othering. They are portrayed as horrific and portrayed as alien in many ways. But they're also framed to be amazing and awesome. Like... Zerk is an eight-foot-tall golden god. He is he is like one of the most impressive and beautiful creatures in this movie. And the the the, the, the immortals are look amazing. And the magicians they have throwing bombs look amazing. And it all looks amazing. And I I think I said in my letter up review, like every shot in this movie is the best shot in the movie. Mm. That ev- everything is to eleven. And it means that that's why it can get a little bit everything so much, but at the same time, it's just an experience to watch it. How are you on it, Sam, after 14 years? See, <laughs> um, I, I was reading about listening back to your um, points earlier on from 14 years ago and agreeing with a lot of what you were saying and thinking vindication <laughs> just no I, I agree I agree with your assessment there there is an awful lot to find awful lot that is execrable about this film and that you should rightly find horrible about this film and like you said this there are people who watch this film I mean, it's the Fight Club argument. Watch this film and not see the satire. But I think there is too much to enjoy in this film. Like, mm. for example, there are things like, and I, I was was listening listening myself from fourteen years ago, thinking like, and I could see my point, but I felt like a very hyperbolic version of myself. It was like a stereotype of myself. Um, so to to look at the film more dispassionately, it was there, there were things about this film that were not good at all. Yeah. Um, for example, to take I mean aside from any political, racial, gendered ideas, um, like the dialogue in this film is just terrible. Just there there are. I've written some of this down. What should a free man do? I filled my heart with hate. These things make no sense. This is this is rubbish. But then, then I found myself thinking, well, 
who cares? Like this, mm. this film is not about dialogue. Like you talk about yourself as as being focused on the lyrics. In the case of Bo Burnham, for example, the the idea of that the script is really important, and words do yeah. have meaning. But three hundred, it's it's like it's a well, you can tell it's from a graphic novel. It's 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 like it's a painting. It's just a spectacle to watch. And as you said, every shot in this film is brilliant. So I was just just found myself thinking, well. Yeah, there were bits that weren't great, but at the same time, it didn't really matter. Like I found myself thinking, like when when he says this is Sparta at the beginning, that famous and gets rid of the messenger. You just think, well, yes, I know this is terrible and hammy, and the dialogue's awful, and it is playing as the worst sorts of toxic masculinity. But it's just quite fun, and it looks mm. good. It, I think more than good because I think for me it looks interesting and mm. I think that in this day and age I mean, here we are in 2021 like films come on a long way we've all got used to digital effects we've all got used to films like Mad Max Free Road and stuff but back in 2007 this film looked like nothing else we'd ever seen before in our lives mm. Yeah, this film, like, like the, the look of this film and it's all shot in front of uh, a green screen it's all shot with digital effects you know I, I can count on more fingers than I have the amount of times people would come into my suite as a colorist and go make it look like 300. It was a it was a, a benchmark for this kind of film. This looked like nothing else, and yeah, I think I think you're right. I think ultimately, you've got, I think the way I said before, we've got to see it is that Delios is telling us a story, and that's why it becomes this. I suppose, for one, for better word, this objectification of people. Like we, there's a there is this whole sort of narrative around how it sets up unfair ideals for men. Like all of the Spartans are ripped, all of them, mm. absolutely. That they are they are carved from marble, and the effects do nothing but highlight that. But they are a mass. Like the whole point of it, it's a phalanx. They work as a unit, um, and all of that. But like they are a faceless mass of flesh. You know, yes, you have Leonardi's and you have the captain and you've got Michael Fassbender um, and Delio. You have these few stand up, but generally they're just just a mass of people. And it's the same for the others. You've got, you've got Xerxes, yes, but like the immortals are, they're all, fa- they're, they're literally faceless and they are, they all blend in and everything sort of, even though the, the Persian army has this sort of waves of different styles, none of them come with character. They just end up being these objects. It's just beautiful objects fighting. And that's because I think, yeah, you've got, this is where I've got to view it. You've got to view it. This is boiled down propaganda piece. This boiled down story being told. I do think that your earlier points about the Western hegemony and the war on the East, and that is something to see here. And I think anyone who knows, um, the, uh, the original author, um, from the comic books, he has gone on to do some more questionable comics, shall we say? Um, he's gone on to be quite a unpleasant person, some of his views. And I think you can see the echoes of that back here. And I think it's very easy to look at him, very easy to look at the movie and see some quite worrying trends of 300 white Western men, Western for one better men fighting the hordes of the, um, uncouth um, east but then 
the East, they're all slaves. There's a whole thing about how they are all slaves and they're slaves made to fight for Xerxes. So I don't think it's quite as clean cut that, but I do think that, I think as we said at the start, there's, it's far too easy to read this film in very bad ways. Mm. And having seen Zack Somerset films over the years, and I don't think he's a great filmmaker in many ways, despite my love for Army of Dead. I don't think he's a great filmmaker, and I, but I don't think he is this kind of pro-fascist, pro-cop brush this film painted with. No. I think he has some questionable views on women, especially things like from his movies like Sucker Punch. Um, and I think he likes violence. And I think this film plays to that. But I don't think he is this pro-fascist that people think he is. But I think the film is so easily read that way. And I think that's a failing of the movie. Mm. That even if it isn't meaning that, it's very easy. Like, like Fight Club, yes, it's, it, it can be read badly, can miss a satire. But as soon as you see the satire, it instantly changes. And it's not hard to point out the satire. Like, it, it, to take someone who loves it unironically in a unsatire way and explain what's really going on is not a hard process. Mm. This is a film that, you know, I, I'm still torn on liking because I can see all of the plots and all the problems that everyone discusses. And I admit them and they're all there. Yeah. One thing I did want to talk about is the film sort of turns on, or the film turns on FRTs and telling Xerxes about the path. But something you see in this film, and I don't know, I still haven't read, is 14 years later and I still haven't read the graphic novel. Um <laughs> But I don't know whether it is in the original. But Xerxes knew about the path. Mm. Is when when Ephaltes tells him, it's like he is backing up something that Xerxes already knows. Xerxes says, "So tell me about this path." And there was just something that sort of backs up this idea of Xerxes as a god. He just mm. buys them like what you're saying about this film, the beginning being sort of very linked to myth being being mythic in its scope and it it just feel like this the the Spartans being undone was preordained because Xerxes was obviously going to work out how to defeat them because he knew about the path already. I think that's that's an excellent point. And that's I suppose where I come back to my same sort of viewers of looking at this through a Brechtian lens. You know how this is going to end. The whole mm. movie, like, like the film doesn't offer surprises. No. Really. Um, yes, there are momentary, how does this fight go? What happens here? The death of, um, one of the, one of the named Spartans, the captain's son is a bit of a shock, but there's no twist to this story. You know, Leonardo's doesn't kneel and he was never going to kneel. No. Nothing, you know, the first story of him, rising up through the ranks of Spartan kids and fronting the wolf and all of that. Like everything the film is, is told in the first five minutes. And so you do end up with this kind of break. And you're right. Like the hunchback and Xerxes feel like they're just playing out their parts in many ways. Mm. Um, they are that as soon as you have the interaction of Leonardo's and Hunchback, they like it's destined to go the way it was. Yes, you you, you know that FLT is going to be snubbed, and you know that he is going to have his 
have yeah. his way against their nose. You you know that. Knowing no, even if you knew nothing about this film or this story, you'd know exactly what was going on. And the whole the whole ethos of the Spartans is be like, yes, they're probably all going to die, but they're going to die on their own terms. They're going to do it when they want to. So you know, until they make the big call that everyone else go home and will stand and die, that they're not going to die. Mm. You know, and yes, you have people dying, and you have the immortals coming on long and being the first one to kill some Spartans and kind of setting that up a little bit as being a bit more of a serious bad guy. But it's just. It's just meant to be cool moment after cool moment. You know, the whole, I think it's a really amazing bit of cinema, but when they fire the arrows and all the Spartans crouch down with their shield and the sun goes dark. Yeah. And it's just like, it looks ace. Yes, do I wish Zack Snyder could take this movie and his effects and apply something with a little bit more progressive morals? Sure. I'd love that, but I'm still going to, like this movie and still have a, a good time watching it. And I don't think to admit it's problematic elements precludes us from enjoying the movie. Yes. I think so. um, but yeah, I, I must say there is a sequel to it. I've never seen the sequel. Yeah. I, I didn't want to. No. Even, even though 14 years brought you finding the film more problematic and me liking the film more, I don't think either of us, still neither of us want to watch the sequel. It's the sort of film where I'm really glad I've watched it, and maybe I'll see it again in another 14 years. Yeah. But I'm probably not dipping back in. But I do. I think it's just, you know, Gerard Butler is a man who's continued to make interesting movies um, and be a presence. Be, and here he is at full charisma. He's full charisma in this movie. Mm. Um, and you do, you, you like him. Like, he is a brutal like ruler of his people and a brutal person. He's a brutal murderer. He has no sympathy for anybody. He is like on paper, not a great guy. He led these men to die. But yeah. at the same time, you like him, you respect him. And he has a, that Gerard Butler twinkle, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I found myself like, I knew what was going to. I knew anyway what was going to happen for very many reasons. But I found myself thinking, "Well, I hope Jared Butler survives," even though I knew that was ridiculous because there was just <laughs> something about him. Even though I, I knew he was going to die, but still, yeah, we haven't talked about it much at all. But like Lena Headley, who plays Queen Gorgo, uh, doing sort of a political intrigue bit back at uh, a base camp. She's brilliant, and because I think she's one of the actresses who can really portray both sides of that character, of which she is sexual and desired, and you see how her and Leonardis have the relationship they have. But also, when she pulls out a sword and murders Theron in the middle of the floor, you believe that as well. Mm. And, you know, talk about King Leonardo saying, you know, you're lucky women didn't, didn't come. You know, you're lucky they, they, they stayed at home. And with Queen Gorgo being our single sort of view into Spartan women, you believe it. She has that element. Because for me, obviously, she's um, from Game of Thrones. I know her from Judge Dredd. Um, I believe she was in one of the Terminators, I think. Um, she has that real kind of like, could quite easily kill you vibe to her. And she really does impl employ that in the character here where 
you understand the femininity of that role and the sort of, for the want of a better word, the mothering nature of it. But also, yeah, she would kill a guy. See, I I have no history with Len. I've never seen Game of Thrones, never, I, mean, I haven't even watched Judge Dredd, so I don't think I've ever seen her before. Is she, is she even to me, gave it gave off that vibe. I just thought there were... I, I, I left this film thinking she was great. I wanted more of her with a better script because mm-hmm. she is not served well. There's that sort of supposed to be browsing speech in the forum at the end when she stands up and speaks in front of the assembled men. It's just not rousing at all. I'm just like... Lena, please go find someone who can actually write something for you. And I think that's for me. I, I understand why it was there, and I understand why it. Sorry, but like the political intrigue stuff was for me when the film dropped a little bit. Mm. Yeah. Um. You know, Dominic West is a brilliant actor. Lena Headley is a great actress. Um. Everyone involved in that was good, but I didn't care. Mm. It just, I just, it was just like this is a different kind of movie, and I'm not interested in the political machinations. Like there is a great movie about the political machinations of Sparta and the Greece, and at this point, of, and the rousing of like that, that's a great story to be told. But this is the movie. This is the movie of fighting demons and you know catching arrow. Like, that, that's this movie. Um, and for the, for me, that stuff dropped off a little bit because it felt less mythic. It felt less. Yeah. Like we are seeing gods among us. It just felt like, I don't know, a boring procedural. Yeah, this film at times felt a bit like two films stitched together. Mm. And it was like, well, you focus on one part, it could have been better. You could have gone for something like The West Wing only thousands of years ago. If you focus on the other part, then, okay, it's just about the fighting, but you've tried to focus on them both and it doesn't really work. So I agree yeah. with you. It sort of drops off a bit towards the end. But I also think like, the, the moment at which the end, when Leonardo accepts his death and gives the gives Delios the um, necklace hand back, like, that moment's earned by what you know about Queen Gorgo. So it's a fine line to tread. But yeah, I, I, I would say I think those are the, the weaker moments of it. Mm. Um, that political intrigue, you, know, you, you don't want your mythic hero being questioned by an oversight committee. Like, you know, you want him out there saving the world. On, on a side note, I've listened to a historian talking about Sparta and was asked how accurate the film well, There was sort of a, a flippant question about this. And, and he was like, well, that, that um, come back with your shield and on it is something that Spartan women, Spartan mothers said to their sons. And they did fight in sword and shield and sandals and not much else. So there were some, there was some historical accuracy to this film. Just I stick up for this film in a way that I don't think twenty-five-year-old, twenty-three-year-old me would have done. Yeah, I can see that. Hi, I'm Richard, the host and GM of the D20 Future Show, the world's premier D20 Future audio podcast. And I want to tell you why I love the Bourne supremacy. After being introduced in the Bourne identity, Jason Bourne is sucked back into the world of espionage and violence he looked to leave behind, while the camera technique used is often poorly imitated and 
just ends up as sort of shaky cam that doesn't really point to anything at all. Paul Greengrass meticulously constructed every single shot as a camera that didn't know. The viewer is immersed into the action as the camera is just as surprised by the action as the characters involved. It is gritty, gnarly, thrilling and seeks to build on everything achieved in the first film. And while I wouldn't want to spoil the ending for anyone who hasn't seen it, it leaves us in no doubt of the contempt that Jason feels for his political masters and the violence that they have met out. It's great. Sam, do you have some recommendations for us? I do. Um, And the first one you talked about, Zack Schneider as being, um, I suppose, not potential to do good things, potential to do better things. You kind of wanted him to be in charge of a better film. Um, He was a producer on Wonder Woman, which I think really was a better film, and it does capture this... Actually, I think it's a bit unfair because I was about to say it captures this um, balance between political intrigue and um, battle. And the reason it does that and the reason it looks so awesome and brilliant is that it's 10 years younger than 300. And like you were saying, at the time, 300 was just incredible. I mean, I've... I've got a list of other films that came out in 2007 here. The other, you know, the fantasy films, like, and they're good films. You've got Stardust, Harry Potter, or The Phoenix, Miss McGorham, even like one of the Pirates of the Caribbean came out. But, I mean, they're good films, but they just don't look like this. So I think it's a bit unfair of me to hold Wonder Woman up as, as so much better than 300. It is, but it is because... The industry has moved 10 years on. Yes. Um, the other one is one I know Rob's not going to like, and I seem to do this every week. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, Michael Fassbender. I enjoyed in 300. I enjoy him in, in anything he does, actually. Um, he was very good as the lead in a film which I really liked and Rob really hated. It was 2015 Steve Jobs. Oh, um. <laughs> and that tells you. Let's see that this is. I, I don't want to clarify here. I thought he was very good in that film. Yeah. I don't le- like Steve Jobs as a person. No. But I thought that film was very good because it showed up f- a bit of what he was really like. But yes, no, I, I, I know what you're saying. How about you? I've got two, one of which I'm pretty sure Sam doesn't like. So we'll go from there. <laughs> <laughs> Delios, the. Um, the narrator storyteller character was played by an actor called David Wenham, who has been in a lot of things over the years. Most notably, he was in Lord of the Rings as Faramir. Um, but he also popped up in a film that we talked about way back in season two, I think. Um, and that's the 2008 film Australia from Baz Luhrmann. Mm. I recall Sam not being very keen on the show as movie. Um, and I was a lot more keen. He plays one of the antagonists in the movie. Um, I really like this movie. I think this film falls in the same category of being a bit problematic, but looking beautiful and being quite a visual experience, being a sumptuous movie epic of a, um, of a movie. So I think Sam was keen, but I was very keen. Um, my second information is the cinematographer on um, 300 it was one called Larry Fong who's gone to a lot of things um, he's now 
He's doing a lot of big movies. But the movie that I want to talk about is his film from about three, four years ago, Kong Skull Island. Now, I love monster movies. That's why it's called Koji FM, because I love Koji films. Um, this was one of the modern sort of monsterverse movies that they put out, the modern Koji movies they're putting out. And it is amazing looking for these movies. I'm the first to say a lot of these films don't... You're looking to see big things blown up. You're looking for visual feasts. But Larry Fong shot Skull Island like it was a Vietnam movie. This is Apocalypse Now, but with a giant monkey. It looks amazing. Some of the shots of the helicopters flying in on this island look like they look like a war movie. And it's just beautifully shot. And it's a wonderfully great movie. It's such a good film. And it was the real launching point for the modern sort of Godzilla vs. King Kong, King, um, that, that the whole sort of modern slayer movies sort of comes from this big launching off point of uh, Skull Island. So there's my two, Australia yeah. and Skull Island. So guys, that's our 200th episode and ultimately the wrapping up of uh, of season four for us. We've finished up our look through um, different genres over this uh, this season and we're heading into our fifth season so I imagine it's going to be a little bit of a uh, a break while we get things in, in place for that um, but hopefully we'll be back soon as we can with the start of season five for you guys um, it's been it's been a very enjoyable five years do you want to tell people how they can get in touch sure you can find both of us or well the show itself on twitter at Precious Podcast you can email just me at prestigefilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find just me at Kaiju FM on Twitter. And we'll be back here in hopefully a few weeks' time uh, with a new series and a new movie, as yet undecided. So we'll have to leave you with that. Till then, guys, we'll see you soon.